Rob, thank you very much. Um, Greg, thank you too. Uh, there we go. Um, I was thinking about uh, what Rob had chosen to use as the songs and this morning in our worship, and really just thankful for his maturity and wisdom and uh, insight and understanding in the text, because what we've been doing in our f- flow of, of preparation for worship is, is really just a simple thing where I'm giving him the theme of the, the services or the series and uh, just telling him the scripture passage, but Rob has been really good this morning, especially I think it's nailed down the text of what we're doing. So um, a couple weeks ago, we in, ended our series in First John, and um, you know what our habit is. Typically, we uh, have some kind of series that we're doing in messages. This one, as, the, as we were ending First John, one of the things that the Lord just impressed me to do was to look at the topic of, of biblical joy. And I just started listing some of the, the key passages that describe what biblical joy is. And in doing that, I, I started realizing that there's probably a, a number of like eight to nine messages that would easily fit in that topic. And so we're, we're going to do some other things down the road, but this is a series that I think the Lord just wanted us to, to be invested in. And um, so I, hopefully you'll enjoy this, as, and that's no pun intended, please understand that, um, that you will enjoy this because I think it's going to be really important. So um, again, let me, let me do this because I know we have a couple guests and this is one of those things I, I think we, I, I want to make sure I'm in a good habit of doing. My name is Matt Warren. <laughs> um, I'm the lead pastor here, one of the elders, and we're just grateful that you're here to worship with us. So you are entering into a good time. So if you like where the series begins, come back, worship with us again. So I want to begin um, giving you two, we're going to start with two passages of scriptures. So first of all, I would ask that you go to Nehemiah chapter 8. You're going to put your finger in that passage because we're going to move to that in just a minute, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 8, and then after that, go to John 16, because I'm going to use that as a way of introduction. So maybe if you have a marker or something else, you don't need to take notes around the John 16 passage necessarily, because um, I'm just going to make a few quick remarks about it. But the Nehemiah, man, Judge, he's asleep, like zonked out. I've already bored him to that point, huh? It really happened before that. It happened. Rob did it. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> y'all, y'all need to see him. He is just like zonked out. Dead, dead weight there. Um, so, I, uh, I, I was like, I wonder what, and you guys know I do this on occasion, so I, I was like, I wonder what other people are saying about the biblical concept of joy. And I thought, you know what, I know somebody that's going to say something that I'm not going to like, and they're going to say it in a way that's going to sound really neat and, and, you know, authoritative, but it's going to be an error. Can y'all imagine who I w- I'm thinking about? That's exactly right, Gina. Yes. Joel Osteen. And I'm not going to make fun of his voice as I try to do this this morning, even though it's kind of ringing in the back of my head. But I did. I wanted to go see what, what Joel had to say about the concept of joy. And so in this message and, and on his website, I think is where I found it or wherever it was, it was this thought about John 16, 22. And so he introduces this concept of, of his definition, if you will, or his teaching on joy talking about how he had struggles in traffic, that, and he lives in Houston, Texas. I, I will occasionally talk to my friend Eric, and he's in traffic, and he's like, oh, man, I just got cut off. So I hear, like, regularly, you know, um, probably once a month, Eric's driving between meetings, talking to me, and I hear the constant battle that Houston traffic is. I think it actually may be worse than Nashville, if that's even imaginable. But it, it um, anyhow, so Joel's talking about that. And then he gets to the church, and he's forgotten his key fob. And so he can't get into the church, and he's trying to contact other staff, and he's like, I, you know, I couldn't reach anybody, so I had to stand out there and, you know, wait or whatever. And so, ultimately, he then reads John 16, 22. We're going to read that right now, okay? And he says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So then he proceeds to talk about how we control our joy, because no one can take our joy from us. And he talks about uh, it's not circumstances, it's none of those things. And um, ultimately saying that, that joy, biblical, or like joy is something that, that is, we are responsible to keep in the midst of our difficulties. And I, I honestly thought to myself, well, that sounds all, you know, just good and kind of positive, which is typical of him. But I thought, is that really what that text says? 
And, and so I went, and I went, let's read the context of this. So let's do that real quick. Let's be, just begin in verse 20, okay? It says, truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So he's talking about this transition that happens. And, and let's keep reading. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Now let's stop there for just a moment. What is Jesus saying to his audience there? He's saying, I'm about to leave. And that's going to cause you sorrow. But I will what? Come again. And my presence with you again will be the cause of your joy. Was this about the circumstances of traffic or getting locked out of the church or if we put it in our own context, all the other things that would happen in our lives that we should have control over? No. This is about us understanding that Jesus is the purpose, the, the, the power, the person behind any source of true biblical joy. And if we don't get that, we are in a, a dangerous place this morning. And that's why, I, and I, I know it's like, some, I talked to somebody this week and they're like, you're going to start your sermon that way? And I'm like, yeah. It helps us remember why we teach biblical truths the way we teach them. And, and normally I don't necessarily name names, but I think it's important to recognize when people continue to teach error and they teach bad Bible study habits, it endangers us. And I would really encourage you to avoid Joel Osteen and his teaching because it tends to stray away from contextual Bible study and the truth. So let's keep going and, and reading verse, uh, verse 22 again. He says, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Why is joy ours? Because Christ is returning and his return will bring us joy that we will be, be people desiring to praise him. And no one will take that, take your joy from you. Why is that? It's not about the emotions of joy. Where is our joy rooted according to Jesus' teaching here? In his personhood, right? Because he will never go away again. Once he returns again, we will always be with him. Isn't that great news? That's why we rejoice, not because of circumstances, not just because Christ has given us something different because of who we are. It's because of his person. Now, let's look at verse 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever ask you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So the, the point is that we have this relationship with Christ that changes us forever. And that's the root of true joy. So, so what that did to me is I'd already outlined, like all, I say outlined, I'd, I'd listed these topics that I felt like the Lord was uh, going to have us go through and look at. And so I was like, which one helps us understand the foundation of biblical joy the best? And so I started reading the passages again and looking at these things, and I felt like, you know, Lord, you, you want us to start this series in Nehemiah 8. So let's go over to Nehemiah 8. And let's look at a couple things. And, and as you're turning there, I, I want to give you this one statement that I think um, is such a powerful statement. It's really simple as we get started on this series. It's this by Spurgeon. He, he, and this is not a direct quote, but basically he says that the joy referred to for the believer in Scripture is not an emotion. Okay? It's not an emotion. He says it is a condition. That is a great truth to hang on to. Our, our joy as followers of Christ ought not to be about an emotion that, it, that is um, impacted by conditions or circumstances or trials or, or even things that uh, you know, are happiness where we have some kind of victory in life. Joy for a believer is based our, on our condition, and that is based on who we are in Jesus Christ. So I think that's a, a huge truth. So let's look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. And I'm going to, after we read this, I'll give you a couple uh, con contextual ideas here uh, that'll help us. So in Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, 
eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So, Rob, I, I don't know when you did the, that little sub-chorus to Joyful, Joyful. Um, if that's something you'd written years ago, you did it just for this week. Man, w- way to go. Thanks, man. Um, so, I, I also want to, like, have you write the chord progression down to that and get the melody. So, sometime I, I've got it. I, you'll have to remember it first? Okay, I understand. Um, it changes every time you do it. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I, I just, but I, I want you to recognize that because what Rob was doing in the worship was coming straight out of this text of Nehemiah 8. And I, I know that's a, kind of a popular chorus line anyhow from, from the scriptures, that the, the joy of the Lord is our strength. That gets repeated often in songs or it's, it's often repeated to one another um, where we just remind each other of that, that great truth. But here's, this is the, the um, context that I want to establish first of all, because I think that when we think about what was happening in, in the, this time with Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites, it helps us understand why their position and then the encouragement or teaching uh, of, of what they were supposed to do in response to the goodness of God is so important. So if you remember, what had happened is the, Nehemiah and Ezra had been leading the Israelites in return from uh, captivity. So they, they had been given freedom, especially Nehemiah, uh, by the leadership of Artaxerxes and some other secular kings to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to establish healthy worship. They were actually being in, like the, the secular king Artaxerxes was actually blessing the people to say, their laws, the Jewish laws, are to be upheld. We are to respect their God. It was this amazing, miraculous thing that God was doing in that season and time. But, what, but why were they in ex- exile? We have to ask that question. Well, ultimately, they had neglected to be obedient to God and His law. And so in that, their, their rebellion in that had led the Lord to bring them to a point of discipline by these four nations. And so in this time period, what they're doing is though the law was still a, a positive thing amongst them, they had not been really focusing on the, the teaching and the, the um, if, I, if I can say like the preaching, teaching, and communication of the law, because they weren't able to do that in these foreign lands easily. It had, it had become very privatized to them in, in their own homes, so to speak. So here they are coming back into to Jerusalem, and Nehemiah gets Ezra, and just before this text, what Ezra's been doing, he's been standing on some kind of platform, reading this, the law to the people in a public forum. And so at some point, because they were so devoted to the law, it's not like they had um, said, oh, we're just dismissing the law. No, it's always held this uh, position of divine authority to them, that, that they recognized it, the, that the law was divested with that complete divine authority. And, and the hearing of it produced a brokenness in them. And I think that's interesting because they started to see why their rebellion, once again, like they understood it, but to hear the law read, that, that confrontation was a, a brokenness to them. And, and I want to make this statement. Um, actually, yeah, I, I want to say this. Godly sorrow or godly grief is what leads to repentance. Does that make sense? I know that's, you may go, that's not very profound. But, but I think we lose sight of that oftentimes. We get caught up, I think especially as Americans, because we have so many things at our fingertips, so many resources, so much freedom, that, that oftentimes our sorrow or our grief is about the circumstances or lack of things that we feel like we have. And the truth is, folks, that's not godly sorrow or grief that leads to repentance. That's circumstantial. We need godly sorrow. We need godly grief that will confront us so that we see our need for transformation. And here's the other thing. Let's, let's go back and look at the text real quick because I think this is important. It says, if I can find it again, um, 
I may, I may be going back too far. Um, anyhow, let me see. I'm going to make this statement. I can't find it right now, but you're going to have to trust me because I'm, I'm not seeing it in the text real quickly. Um, but here's what was happening. That, that at some point, and maybe earlier in the chapter, but Ezra had entered into a season of prayer for the people. Okay? And so as he's praying for the people, this, this is one of those things that I think we need to recognize. Prayer for, the, our, for our own response to the laws of God and His teaching anticipates a response to those things, that God will answer and honor those things. And so his prayer was the foundation for the people's genuine response that led to their repentance. And we could even say this, not just their repentance, but ultimately their revival. And, and, and you guys know, if you've been around our church for any length of time, we're not a typical Baptist church that has these revival services every year. Because I, I think that those things can oftentimes put a lot of pressure on a church because they're manufactured. And, and, and I know God can still work through those things. He's done that in my life. But I think we also need to understand that as we pray for the response of God's people to the things that we are uh, caught up in sin about and we gain a godly grief or a godly sorrow, when the Lord is at work, the answer to those prayers will, it's not about a, a certain week or a certain time that we manufacture. It is about a genuine response to the, to the prayers of God's people. And in that response over the brokenness and sorrow of sin, there is that opportunity to transform because of repentance and experience the joy of the Lord. And it transforms us in every way. And I think that's what we see being the foundation, if you will, for what's happening. If this just didn't happen in a vacuum, so to speak, that all of a sudden Ezra stands up and reads the word, there's been preparation and prayer and a lot of things going into this up to this point. And so we need to be a people of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer over the circumstances of our lives in a spiritual sense. Are we, we need to be asking that question or are praying that we would be sensitive to the truth of God's Word so that our hearts would be broken before Him so that revival and transformation and ministry can occur. And we're going to see all those things play out. So let's um, notice this now. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Th- these are key verses here that, dis- I'm sorry, um, not, well, let's, let's read 7 and 8 just to get a little more context. So also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, I think that's a little background context to what we're going to see next, is that the, the teaching, the, the people were so far removed from the law, even though they, they still considered it to be that divine authority, but they needed help in understanding it. They needed interpreters, if you will, people to bring clarity to their understanding so that they might respond properly. I think that's a large responsibility of, of pastors, teachers, of grow group leaders, of women's ministry leaders and Bible study teachers, that we would be people that teach the law well, that we help people connect the dots, not that we're the ultimate authority, but that, that we would communicate in such a way that there's a clear understanding that comes about as the law is taught. So, so parents, let me even say this to you, because I, I, I was talking to Rob this morning, and some of you may remember this or know this, but some of you may not know. We have a 24-year-old and a 23-year-old, and then we have a almost, well, 16-and-a-half-ish-year-old. And so one of the things that we continually have tried to do with our kids, again, two of them young adult kids now, is we talk to them about what the Scriptures teach, especially coming out of Sunday mornings. We will emphasize what were the things that were taught. And, and then specifically, Katie, because typically I've been up here in, in our uh, ministry life, um, I don't get that privilege of sitting beside, but you hear me share this consistently. Juliana, probably what age, 13 or so, you started becoming an avid note taker. Is that about right? Maybe even a little earlier? Even earlier, okay? So she has notebooks that she fills. Uh, last week, Michael, as, as you were teaching, I was sitting beside her watching her take notes on Michael's sermon. Those are things that we don't leave to chance. We're helping our children interpret. 
Does that make sense? Or we're becoming the, the go-between in interpreting and enhancing their understanding of the Word of God too. It needs to be something that we're doing consistently, that we're modeling that. Parents, if your children aren't in here, go find out what they learned today. Look at the papers that are sent home with them. Talk to them about those truths. And, and I'm looking around seeing some of you with younger children in here. That's cool. Make sure that you take this because this is not targeting a, an elementary age student in this ministry, but make sure that you translate and help them grab some truths out of this. It's your responsibility to do those things. And so here's the, the promise, and here's what we see in this. As the, those teachers of the laws, those list of Levites, helped them to understand the people were broken, but they also understood, the leaders also understood this. It was a day that was to be holy. They weren't to remain in sorrow and grief and brokenness. They were called to rejoice in the Lord. So here's, here's what they ultimately say, and this gets us to the main text today. In, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse uh, 10. Let's go right there. It says, then he said to them, this would be Nehemiah, and I don't think he's overstepping his bounds speaking for Ezra or the Levites. I think there's some kind of uh, probably group meeting that they had either before or in the midst of this that they're realizing some things, and it's just we get Nehemiah being the, the vocal uh, person in this. He said to them, go your way, Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So, here's the, the key truth that I think we've got to start with when we think about the marvels of biblical joy. That the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, here's the important truth in this. This is not an emotion. This is a, a based on the person and the character and the nature of God himself. The joy is the, the joy of the Lord. It's what he possesses himself. And, and if we don't get that right, we miss everything about truth, the, the truths of biblical joy. So I want you to understand this first of all. That the, the idea of biblical joy finds its uh, definition in its divine origin. It finds its definition in divine origin, that being in the person of God himself. So I, I think about this, how, how do we begin to understand that? Kind of If it's grounded or rooted or defined by the divine person in, in God himself, how do we begin to understand that? How do we experience, how, how, how do we have it solved the, the, the issue of our sorrow or our, our discomfort, our grief. Well, it means this. We have to be in communion with God first and foremost. It's simple, right? But, but how many times we overshoot that idea or fall short of that idea because we get focused on what? Our circumstances, the things that are going on around us rather than really focusing in on the person of God. And let me say this, I'm going to go back real quickly, because one of the things I really appreciated about Rob's uh, choice of songs this morning is that as we sang, and I think it was Joyful, Joyful, that, that song emphasized that Trinitarian focus, right? So it is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit who uh, we recognize in this Godhead sense, okay, that we're talking about that it is the entirety of the Godhead. It's not just one person. Though we primarily and essentially come to the understanding of the Godhead through Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And we can't leave that out, okay? But, but here's, this is a, a great statement, I, I hope. We are not left to search for joy. And you say, what? We're not left to search for joy, for joy. No, because when we enter into communion with God, we don't search for joy. It's, it, it happens because of the relationship with Him. It's brought to us by the love of God for us. Isn't that a great truth? We don't have to like go out fumbling and finding this idea of joy. It is ours by nature when we come to know God through communion with Him, through Christ Jesus. That is so awesome to think about. So it is, let me, let me even further this. It is a joy that is refined and satisfying, that is fitting 
for us as children of God. That, that is a powerful statement. It is a joy that is fitting and refined for us as children of God. It is no small, slight thing to be called a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. That, that relationship and that communion with the, our Heavenly Father, it transforms everything about who we are, beginning with joy. So, what is, let me, let me talk about this idea of the meaning of this idea of, of biblical joy. If the joy of the Lord is our strength, what does that look, look like? If it's been passed on to us, what does it really consist of? Because here's the truth. It is not manufactured or fashioned by man in any way. The joy of the Lord is about the person of God. So it can't be something that we control. It can't be something that, that we like uh, modify in any way. Is simply received and ours to possess because of our relationship with Christ. So what does that joy consist of? Let me give you some, some qualities or attributes to think about because of who God is. Because He is powerful or sovereign, get this, He's my protection. Isn't that good news? That brings joy to me. Because He is wisdom, He provides all wisdom, we have Him as a guide in all things. We, we don't do without in that sense. That is good news. Because He is faithful, He is my foundation and my strength. His grace is my salvation. His love is my reward. I'm going to go to, I, I put this in as just like if, if I got hit with this idea. I, I mentioned the 77s, a, a great band. Rob, do you know them by chance, like of their music by chance? A little bit? Okay. They have this great song. I, I tell you all to listen to Christian music um, all the time. Uh, I say all the time, frequently. Do you all do y'all ever go and listen to these groups? Does anybody ever? Shame on y'all. <laughs> I'm trying to help you. I mean, a couple weeks ago, Rob Jones texted me, hey, I'm tired of the radio. I, he would have texted me, and I don't think on his computer he had done this. Sorry. I texted my computer. So um, he, would have te he texted me and said, I'm tired of listening to the Christian radio. What are some other groups to listen to? So I was like, here, flood, like, ban, 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 ban. Um, the 77s is a great old group. They're old. But they have this song, um, This Is The Way Love Is. If you've never listened to it, you need to go listen to it because it is just, one, musically great, but two, lyrically great. And here's what they say in this. I, I love the imagery of this. When I gave up, they're, they're talking about the love of God towards us, okay? When I gave up, you held up. When I ran out, you filled me up. When I kept running, you kept up. When I let you down, you lifted me up. This is the way love is. When I couldn't find the words, you understood. When I didn't find the time, you were in no hurry. When I wouldn't make ends meet, you held them together. When I cheated, you kept to the rules. This is the way love is. Are y'all like me going, I'm, I'm all those first things. Praise God, he's all those second things to me in the midst of my struggles. When I was keeping it in, you were giving out. When I was losing out, you let me come back. When I was holding back, you were holding on. When I was losing my cool, you were keeping your love warm. This is the way love is. See, that, that's where joy derives from. Not any of my emotions or my shortcomings or my misgivings or any of those things. It's simply because God is faithful in all things and good all of the time. Are y'all getting this a little bit now? Okay, cool. Um, so, when we think about these things about the Lord, and I think this is, I want to dive a minute into some hopefully good deep doctrine here. One of the things that why we can trust that the joy of the Lord is our strength and all those things is because God is immutable. I know that's a word that I've said several times in our church life lately, and I'll define it again. It means that God is unchanging. He never changes in any way. That's something that's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around a, a bit because that's not a common theme in a lot of church, churches and, and theology pop culture theology, I think waters that idea down some, but we need to make sure that we understand that God is never changing. And because God is never changing, you need to hear this, His love for us never changes either. That is good news. So look at Isaiah 54 with me. Put a bookmark in uh, Nehemiah, we'll be back there. So over in Isaiah chapter 54, 
We're going to pick up in verses 5 and read 5 through 8. Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8. Listen to this about our Heavenly Father. It says, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He has called. Do you hear the majesty of God right there expressing that? It's amazing. Now listen to this in verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Whoa. You hear that passage and hear how we are the ones that go astray, that the Lord has certainly disciplined those He loves for a moment, but ultimately, He loves us with what? An everlasting love. The, the God of, of the heavens, the true and living God, He is eternal. He has no beginning, no end. He is outside the bounds of time. We sang it this morning that He holds time in His hands. What a great picture. Because time is not perceived the same way by Him. And so, when He loves... His love is an everlasting love. It has no beginning. It has no end. This immutable, unchanging God loves us with an everlasting love. That brings joy. That, that love is the joy of the Lord. That's the, that, that is part of what He's expressing to us. That is our strength. That, that when we are overwhelmed by all these things in life, no, we look to the God that the Bible declares and describes as immutable, unchanging, who loves us with an everlasting love. And we are rooted and grounded in that, not to find discouragement, not to be uh, overwhelmed in the, the grief and the sorrow and the discomfort of things. See, that's why we need the joy of the Lord. That's why the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, let's look a little further at our text this morning. So, actually, Julie... I think I've got a quote by Spurgeon that it's two pages. Um, I know sometimes uh, I, I was reading or I was listening to Michael last week, and as he read the quote, I thought, we need to go back to putting these on the screen because I think it would just help sometimes with the wordiness. And then also I know sometimes you guys, like, I, I would be like furiously handwriting, you know, in my notes if I was taking notes, but you guys are wiser than me. You take your phones out and take a screenshot. So, if, if I'm in the way and you want to do that, just, just give me this motion and I'll move real quickly, okay? Um, so let's read this statement by Spurgeon because I think this is a phenomenal statement about the, the Lord and His love and how it ties into the joy uh, of, of the Lord being our strength. It's a, he says this, The Lord is no longer an angry judge pursuing us with a drawn sword, but a loving Father into whose bosom we pour our sorrows and find ease for every pang of heart. Oh, to know, beloved, that God actually loves us. I have often told you that I cannot preach upon that theme. I love this statement. He says, I can't preach upon that theme, for it is a subject to muse upon in silence, a matter to sit by the hour together and meditate upon. Next slide. The infinite, to love an insignificant creature, an ephemera of an hour. That means like a little amount of time. Okay, that, that, that he would do that even a little bit. A, a shadow that declines, sorry, typo over there, that's me, is not this, is this a marvel. For God to pity me, I can understand. For God to condescend, to have mercy upon me, I can comprehend. But for him to love me, for the pure to love a sinner, for the infinitely great to love a worm is matchless, a miracle of miracles. Wow. When we contemplate the love of God for us, it establishes this idea of why His joy is our strength. Now, what does this ultimately do for us? And I think this is where we, we get into the, the text again a little bit more specifically. This joy, and I want, I want to make sure that we cover this, this joy occurs in the fact that we are first reconciled to God. And as we read through Isaiah, I hope that theme comes, came about clearly. 
like you're hearing about him talking about being the redeemer, the, the one who transforms us. And here, I think that's what Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites are telling the Israelites as they're hearing the law, they're understanding, yes, we're broken for our sin, we're grieved over our sin and our rebellion, but they say, stop grieving because this is a day holy for the Lord. It's set aside for us to worship Him because you are transformed. The goal is not to be broken, to leave us broken in sin. The law was never intended to leave us broken in sin, right? But that's, now, now I'm going to say something. That's what the world thinks about the law of God, don't they? They think it's a bunch of rules that would leave us depleted, struggling along. But the, the law is actually designed to do what? To reveal our need for Christ so that when we repent of our sin and trust Christ's work for our salvation, we would then be transformed and rejoice. That's the, the hope of the law. It produces a right description so that we would find freedom. It's not about bondage. It's about freedom in Christ. That's why the joy of the Lord is our strength. So here's what ultimately when we go back to Nehemiah, what we see is them saying, this is not about our consequences. They, they said to them, look, in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. Don't get caught up in this, the circumstances. Live a life that pleases the Lord. Now, here's the second thing, and I think this is an important truth that we need to recognize. Did you, did you see what what, he in, the, what the people are instructed to do? Look at this second part of verse 10. It said, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. What, what are they being instructed to do? And, and I, I kind of get this image. Like, there's so many people that are, have been able to come into the, to the walls of Jerusalem in, in, in that area to hear the, the law read, and they're getting the interpretation of the teaching of the Scripture and getting it clarified. But I think there's people outside that are probably returning at some level, trying to come back into Jerusalem. Maybe they just weren't able to make it in that day. I don't know all the circumstances. But there's this sense to me that their resources were limited because of all the transitions that they were going through. And they are, the people that were able to hear instructed, go serve them. Though they, they couldn't prepare the meal, though they didn't get these truths, go serve them. Share with them the hope of this message that God is a God of comfort and strength. And that's what the joy of the Lord does. It enables us to not sit and just soak. The joy of the Lord is our strength to go and serve others in profound ways, to amplify, if you will, the hope of the joy of the Lord to others. It's, it's not that we are the, the, the speaker, but we are the speakers, right? That, that we're like the loudspeakers amplifying the one speaking at the mic. That, that we are taking the joy of the Lord and administering the hope and the comfort that He brings to those who need that same comfort, that same joy. And so, look at verse 11. So, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And then look what happens. And all the people went their way to eat and drink. They obeyed. And then to send portions and to make great rejoicing. So, isn't that, that great? So, here's the three outcomes that we see in the, in the text, okay? There's three practical things that occur. The first is this. There is satisfaction. I... Um, just thought about like trying to connect this dot. When you think about sorrow and grief, especially over sin, and, and the, the things that sin does to rob us of joy and peace and comfort, that's what the people were dealing with. They, they were wrestling through their own brokenness, the, the hardness of heart that they, they experienced and expressed to the Lord over decades. But they came back, and they, in hearing the hope of the gospel, their grief found comfort. Where is grief ultimately comforted or from? It's from joy, right? That, that there's a healing balm in the message of the gospel. That, that when we know Christ and the hope of the gospel, it's, it's healing salve to the hurt. And, and it's not the circumstances it's the hurt of sin because only through Christ can our sin be remedied. 
Does that make sense? It's not manufactured by us. It's only through Christ and Christ alone. And so that's what we see in the text, is that they were satisfied because of godly comfort. Now, that reminded me of a couple uh, passages. First of all, you can just write these down. I'll I'll read a little bit of the passage to to help you. But 2 Corinthians 1.3, in 2 Corinthians 1.3, we read this. Remember, God is the God of all comfort. (laughs) What a great statement. When we are grieved by sin, the practical outworking, the practical result of God comforting us is joy. See, grief displaced by comfort or ministered to by God's comfort especially produces joy, which is our strength. That's good. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Again, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, we have Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy writing this letter to the church, and they say this. Listen really carefully, okay? This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Whoa, stop there for just a moment. It's not just momentary, temporal comfort. It's eternal comfort. This, this God who loves us with an everlasting love gives us eternal comfort. That produces joy, and he keeps going. He give, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. He comforts you, comfort your hearts, and establish them in every good work and word. So when we have grief that experiences godly comfort, the outworking of that is hope because of the grace of God at work in us. And we then through grace are empowered for good works and an opportunity to testify. Comes back to that amplification of the word of God and his truth. That's the joy of the Lord at work. So that's, that's the first practical outworking. The second practical outcome is this. It's obedience. It's our obedience. Here we see in the context of the, the Israelites, they've been operating in disobedience again and again and again. Yet they hear this message of comfort. They hear that the joy of the Lord is, and a communion with Him is their strength. And what then do they then do? In verse 12, it says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What did they do? They obeyed. <laughs> they just simply obeyed. They didn't argue. They didn't resist. They didn't delay. They said, that was what we were instructed to do. Let's go do that. Folks, we, you've heard me say this, and I, I, this is, a, a, I hope, a, a good parenting tip, maybe a piece of wisdom. It's not, what is it? That's it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Yep. So here's that parenting tip. It's not original with me, but I try to repeat it because it's good. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And I was there. Many of you are there. Teens, you may be there. And, and I think there's times to reason through delay in obedience, to be honest. But, but at the mo- at, we also need to be wise about how we do this. Hey, I need you to clean your room. I will next week. <laughs> That's exactly right, Rob. <laughs> hey, I need you to take the trash out. I will after this game. And what happens when we delay? My, at least I do because I'm weak-minded and not disciplined in these things. I forget, Right? And then it looks like I'm being obe- disobedient, even though my heart might be to obey. But when I delay obedience, it actually ends up being disobedience in the long run oftentimes. Now, I'm not saying that we need to follow that law, you know, legalistically, because there's times, hey, I'm in the middle of this, this can I, I can't pause it or I can't do that. Can I just get it in, in a minute? That there's reasons or, or there's times to, to reason with and through those things. But as a whole, Delayed obedience is disobedience, and we need to be careful. And how did the people respond here? I think this is one of those great illustrations that they responded immediately in uh, obedience. Now, here's the other thing about this. I think that we need to recognize that sometimes obedience takes self-sacrifice. And oftentimes, our lack of willingness to be sacrificial leads to our delay. I don't want to sacrifice my own priorities right now, so I'm going to delay that, and then we end up in disobedience. You, you hear the pattern? So oftentimes it means I want to obey, therefore I'm going to be self-sacrificial. I'm going to put myself and my desires aside in this moment, and I'm going to honor the Lord or honor my authority so that the obedience is immediate 
and it's beneficial. It blesses the Lord. It brings blessing to those around me. And ultimately, those things bring blessing to me because I've honored the Lord in those things, or we honor the Lord in those patterns. So, it oftentimes requires self-sacrifice. Interesting, how does that play out in the Scripture here? The people were called to share their uh, resources with those who weren't prepared. They didn't go, they didn't give them the instructions, go find their resources and then fix them. No, it said, take them those things. We are called to be sacrificial people, honoring Christ, modeling Christ in our ministry. So, obedience uh, is, is, is a key uh, to those things. And, and where is it rooted in? Again, all of this is rooted in the joy of the Lord being our strength. The third practical outcome, and this is the last point of the message here. Look, look back with me. Verse 12, it says, they send their portions, and this midway through, and they were to make great rejoicing. That they praise God. They simply praise God for what had happened. This is, uh, and I, I go back to this very often, um, when we think about God's grace and His mercy, and we understand what our chief end is, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. See how those couple automatically? When we understand who God is in our lives and the things that He's done for us, we can't help but glorify God, praise Him. And, and we praise Him because we recognize that enjoying Him is that idea of joy in the Lord is our strength. That prepares us for everything that we do in ministry, in life. And, and so we praise God for His grace and His mercy and the redemptive uh, work that He's done in our lives because of our brokenness, when we had no ability to provide for our, ourselves. So praise is the appropriate response. I love this Psalm 113.3. It says this. You'll be very familiar with it. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now, let me say this for just a quick second. It's not just the activities of the Lord are to be praised. Now, I'm not saying we don't thank Him for all the things that He's done, but it, it says the name of the Lord. Why the name? Because it's much more about His person, who He is by character and by His nature, than it is just for the things that He's done. Because we don't just look at the things that He's done, not just by His, for His grace, not just for His mercy, but it is for who He is in His goodness, for who He is as the Redeemer, for who He is as the immutable, unchanging God, for who He is as the eternal God. For the, for, yes, certainly for His love, but it, it's an everlasting love that is who He makes up, that He is light and in Him there is no darkness, that He is spirit, that He is truth. All of those things are con, like, if we will, contained in the name of the Lord. And so why do the people respond this way? Because they began to commune with God in a different way because of who He is and what He was doing on their behalf. And they recognized that. So when we think about the joy of the Lord being a biblical concept, it's wrapped up in these key ideas, who the person of God is, and then how we respond to that in, as brings a practical application. So I want to ask a simple question this morning, really simple. How are you doing understanding and knowing the joy of the Lord? Here's the, the, the quick, like, if, if you could know, how do I check this? It's not like a list. You ought not scale this in 1 to 10 when I say, how are you doing? Do you know that the joy of the Lord is your strength? You will be finding His strength in every application of your life if you're communing with Him well. It's just simple. It's just simple. And if you're not discovering that, I would go back to this passage and I would ask this other question. Is there sin in your life that, like the Israelites, is inhibiting you? It's like breaking the fellowship so that you can't experience that joy like the Lord desires you to experience and know. It's simple. It's really simple. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we are so grateful for who you are. Lord, I, I think so many times in my own life, I, I can think about the things that you do, and I can be grateful for those. And that's certainly appropriate. But Lord, let us not lose sight that biblical joy is rooted in you. The holy, 
eternal Godhead consisting of the Father, the Son, and the, the Spirit. Lord, as we rightly communion with you because of Christ, the joy that you is, is possessed in your character and nature is passed to us. How incredible that is. And it's not, it ought not be overcome by any circumstance in our lives. Lord, instead, because of our communion with you, we should possess it and it should transform everything that we do. So, Lord, I, I pray that we would be a people as we recognize this truth, that we would live it out practically, that we'd serve others, that we'd be self-sacrificial and obedient, and Lord, that we would praise you well. So, Father, this morning, may we honor you with our lives, and as we respond to the biblical truths, Lord, may we be transformed because of those things and secured in the truth because your Spirit has been at work in us through the Word. We love you. And thank you for your love for us in, in and through Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to thank you again for being here to worship with us at the Grove today. Um, we uh, are so thankful that you were here and trust that you will take a few minutes to, to meet and greet some more folks as we make our way out of the service today. We probably will be transitioning a little bit more quickly because we're going to be going to the uh, baptism for Claire Ryan here in just a couple minutes. So we're going to try to do this. We're going to, it's, it's uh, basically 1120 uh, right now. So we're going to give to about 1135. We'll try to take the, start the, that point of the baptism service um, down there at about that time. So remember, as you leave the church today, it's real simple directions. Turn right out of the church uh, driveway, go up over the hill, down the hill, uh, you're going to pass Pebble Creek Golf Course on your right. You're going to see a turn lane, uh, left turn lane after that. Get in the left turn lane, turn on Abednego Road, and almost immediately after you turn left, you're going to see the nursery on your right. You'll be able to turn in the nursery, and there, there's just a grass field, so you'll be able to pull in kind of close to the creek where we'll do the baptism. So uh, just take a couple minutes here, and then make sure you get over there by 1035-ish, uh, 1135-ish, so you will miss it. Um, we will miss you if it's 1035. I don't know how that goes, but make sure you're there in 1135. So have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Hope to see you over there. Go and connect in communities and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others. Have a good Sunday afternoon.